This is the Daily Signal podcast for Friday, March 26th. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Rachel Del Judas. DeRoy Murdoch is a Fox News contributor and a contributing editor of National Review Online and a senior fellow with the London Center for Policy Research. He joins the Daily Signal podcast to share about his own journey in conservatism, how he got started in the conservative media and journalism, and how he thinks conservatives can do better to reach the black community. And don't forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave us a review or a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Now, onto our top news. President Joe Biden had his very first press briefing on Thursday, over two months after being inaugurated as president on January 20th. He blamed former President Donald Trump for the current crisis at the border. You bear responsibility for everything that's happening at the border now. I hear you talking a lot about the past administration. You decided to roll back some of those policies. Did you move too quickly to, to, roll, to roll back, back what? I'm sorry. Policies. Did you move too quickly to roll back some of the executive orders of your predecessor? First of all, all the policies that were underway were not helping at all. Did not slow up the amount of immigration, and as many people coming. Here's what Biden had to say about the filibuster via the Daily Caller. With regard to the filibuster, I believe we should go back to a position of the filibuster that existed just when I came to the United States Senate 120 years ago. Um, and that is that it used to be required for the filibuster, and I, I had a card on this. I was going to give you the statistics, but you probably know them, uh, that it used to be that uh, the, that well, from between 1917 and 1971, the filibuster existed. There were a total of 58 motions to break a filibuster that whole time. Last year alone, there were five times that many. So it's being abused in a gigantic way. And for example, it used to be you had to stand there and talk and talk and talk and talk until you collapsed. And guess what? People got tired of talking and tired of collapsing. Filibusters broke down and we were able to break the filibuster, get a quorum and vote. So I strongly support moving in that direction. In addition to having an open mind about dealing with certain things that are, are just elemental to the functioning of our democracy, like the right to vote, like the basic right to vote. We've amended the filibuster in the past. But here's the deal. As you observed, I'm a fairly practical guy. I want to get things done. I want to get them done consistent with what we promised the American people. And in order to do that, in a 50-50 Senate, we've got to get to the place where I get 50 votes so that the Vice President of the United States can break the tie, or I get 51 votes without her. And Biden said he doesn't criticize China for its goal of becoming the most powerful country in the world. Here's what he had to say via Fox News. China has an overall goal, and I don't criticize them for the goal, but they have an overall goal to become the leading country in the world, the wealthiest country in the world, and the most powerful country in the world. The CEOs of Facebook, Twitter, and Google testified Thursday before the House Committee on Energy and Commerce. The hearing was the first time the CEOs have testified before Congress since the January 6th attack on the Capitol. 
Democratic Representative Mike Doyle is chair of the House Subcommittee on Communications and Technology. During his opening remarks, Doyle was critical of the role tech companies played in the January 6th attack, saying they should have done more to stop the spread of misinformation. He accused the CEOs of picking engagement and profit over health and safety. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg was quick to refute these claims per The Hill. We did our part to secure the integrity of the election. And then on January 6th, President Trump gave a speech rejecting the results and calling on people to fight. The attack on the Capitol was an outrage, and I want to express my sympathy to all of the members, staff, and Capitol workers who had to live through this disgraceful moment in our history. And I want to express my gratitude to the Capitol Police who were on the front lines in defense of our democracy. Now, I believe that the former president should be responsible for his words, and that the people who broke the law should be responsible for their actions. Republican Representative Kathy McMorris-Rogers of Washington State criticized the tech companies for not doing more to protect children from the harmful effects of social media, per the Energy and Commerce GOP Twitter. Your platforms are my biggest fear as a parent. I'm a mom of three school-aged kids, and my husband and I are fighting the big tech battles in our household every day. It's a battle for their development, a battle for their mental health, and ultimately, a battle for their safety. I've monitored your algorithms. I've monitored where your algorithms lead them. It's frightening, and I know that I'm not alone. After multiple teenage suicides in my community, I reached out to our schools and we started asking questions. What's going on with our kids? What's making them feel so alone, so empty, and in despair? And this is what I heard over and over again from parents, pediatricians, school administrators, and teachers. They're all raising the alarm about social media. Representative McMorris Rogers asked Facebook CEO Zuckerberg about the impact social media has on young people. Here's what Zuckerberg had to say per the Energy and Commerce GOP Twitter. The research that we've seen is that using social apps to, to connect with other people can have positive mental health benefits and well-being benefits, like helping people feel more connected and, and less lonely. Passively consuming content doesn't have those positive benefits to well-being, but isn't necessarily negative. It just isn't as positive as connecting. And the way we design our algorithms is to encourage meaningful social interactions. So it's a common misconception that our teams are, are are gold or, or even have goals of trying to increase the amount of time that people spend. Lawmakers also discussed the need to reform law section 230, which protects social media platforms from being held accountable for the content their users post. While Zuckerberg says he is open to reforms being made to section 230, the CEOs of Twitter and Google instead argued for greater content moderation tools on the platforms. Republican senators have introduced legislation to end child trafficking at the border. According to a statement from Tennessee Republican Senator Marsha Blackburn, the bill requires DHS to deport alien adults if they refuse a DNA test and mandates a maximum 10-year prison sentence for all alien adults who fabricate family ties or guardianship over a minor. 
The legislation, which is co-sponsored by fellow Republican Senators Joni Ernst of Iowa, Tom Tillis of North Carolina, and Mike Rounds of South Dakota, also criminalizes child recycling, which happens when the child is used repeatedly to gain entry by alien adults who are neither relatives nor legal guardians. If family ties or legal guardianship cannot be proven with the accompanying adult, the act requires HHS to process the child as an unaccompanied minor under current law. Now stay tuned for my conversation with DeRoy Murdoch at the Conservative Political Action Conference. Americans use firearms to defend themselves between 500,000 and 2 million times every year. But God forbid that my mother is ever faced with a scenario where she has to stop a threat to her life. But if she is, I hope politicians protected by professional armed security didn't strip her of the right to use the firearm she can handle most competently. To watch the rest of heritage expert Amy Swear's testimony on assault weapons before the House Judiciary Committee, head to the Heritage Foundation YouTube channel. There you'll find talks, events, and documentaries backed with the reputation of the nation's most broadly supported public policy research institute. Start watching now at heritage.org YouTube. And don't forget to subscribe and share. I'm joined today on the Daily Signal podcast by Dora Murdoch. He's the contributing editor to National Review Online. Deroy, it's great to have you with us on the Daily Signal podcast. Rachel, it's great to be with you. Well, thanks for being with us. So I just want to start off. Can you tell us a little bit about your story? Were you always a conservative or was this an ideological journey for you? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I, the reason I'm a conservative, I really thank a couple people. Uh, my dad, to a degree, uh, he was very much, I remember when I was a little boy, really little, um, a big supporter of Richard Nixon. And uh, he and we'd have our wonderful family dinners on most Sundays at my grandma's place. And he and my uncles, who are not right-wing at all, uh, would get in a big screaming, ma- screaming matches about Nixon, Vietnam, on and on and on. And I didn't understand most of it, but I guess some of that must have seeped in. But uh, the two people who really should get the most credit are Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. I was a kid growing up in Southern California when Jimmy Carter's in the White House, and I remember coming home from school, turning on the TV, and watching uh, the Iran hostage crisis, the energy crisis, uh, inflation, high interest rates, uh, Soviet hegemony, all this sort of thing going on. And I thought, my God, this is really bad. If, if this man's reelected, I think we're going to have Red Army troops in Tijuana. I really believe that. And I think that might have been the case because the, the communists are sweeping up uh, from uh, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Guatemala, and probably headed north in our direction. Um, simultaneously, Ronald Reagan, who was former governor, uh, not quite yet running for president in 1980, had these wonderful radio broadcasts he did every morning, five days a week, where he would come in uh, on the radio and talk about uh, inflation, about the Soviet threat, about uh, the Soviet mistreatment of Jews, um, communist expansion in Central America, excess government spending, why taxes need to be cut, and so on. And I listened to this every morning and had the contrast between Jimmy Carter's failures and, and the incredible hope and promise that Ronald Reagan offered. And I thought, I like what I hear. I think this man ought to be president. And I started volunteering for the Reagan campaign in October 1979 when I was in the ninth grade. And I've been involved in the conservative movement and the free market movement ever since. Wow, that is cool. As someone who loves Reagan, um, I just think that's amazing. I love his speeches, especially just listening and giving him any speech. It's just really incredible. It's magic. They, they, I mean, they, they hold up so well over time. Um, the style, 
the delivery, but much more so than all of those things is the substance. The, the truths he um, revealed, the truths he highlighted are still completely valid today. Totally. I have to ask, since you mentioned this, do you remember any specific things out in the campaign or things that you did or stuff that has stuck with you when you were volunteering on his campaign? Interesting. Um, I don't know if any, any one single story jumps out at me. I just remember how exciting it was to be in junior high school, uh, and then into high school, and being involved in all of this. Um, I'd say really if there's any, any really big highlight, it probably would be going to the uh, 1980 Republican convention uh, in Detroit and being there when Reagan was nominated and doing that as a, uh, let's see, I would have been, I think, an incoming 10th grader, if I'm not mistaken. And that was extremely exciting. That whole week we were there. I was there with a bunch of other kids from California. It was the first time I spent any time with kids from the East Coast. And it was very interesting to spend time with them. Most of the California kids were in bed and sleeping by about 11 o'clock. The East Coast kids were wide awake till 3, 4 in the morning. I'm a night owl, and so I had a lot of time hanging out with a bunch of New Yorkers and Massachusetts people who had the uh, sort of uh, late-night tendencies that I do. That's awesome. So, Deroy, how did you get your start in conservative media and journalism? I was the editor-in-chief of my junior high school paper, the uh, the uh, town crier to Paul Revere Junior High School, and I started writing op-ed pieces in uh, fall of 1978, and I wrote op-eds. A lot of people eventually get to writing op-eds after they write news or sports or whatever. I started expressing my opinions straight away. I started doing that immediately and um, wrote op-eds on all the current events of the time. As I mentioned, the energy crisis, Jimmy Carter's failures, uh, things Reagan was talking about, um, Proposition 13 in California, all this sort of stuff. And I just uh, continued with it. Uh, I wrote at the uh, Tideline at uh, Palisades High School, my high school. I was uh, on the paper 10th, 11th grade, I believe. And um, let's see, what else did I do? Then I was at uh, Georgetown University. I was not on the staff of the Hoya, but I wrote for the Hoya. And I think right about 1985 or so, when I was a junior, I believe going to senior year, I met a very wonderful man uh, who was at uh, the Washington Times. He was the, uh, the new um, incoming opinion page editor, or newly installed opinion page editor. And uh, he was uh, very nice to me, and I started sending, I met him at CPAC, as a matter of fact, at a reception. And uh, I sent him my op-ed pieces. A man named Bill Shesher was his name. And he, uh, this is the time he had to type things up, Xerox them, put it in an envelope, and then drop it in the mail. And then he would get it a day or two later, and if he liked it, have his secretary type it up and so on. So that's how we used to do things back then. And he liked the first piece I sent him, which he ran. I sent him another piece, he ran that. And he continued to run pretty much every couple weeks or so, op-ed pieces that I would write. And I continued from there, uh, kept writing through uh, college, uh, wrote a bit during uh, business school at New York University. Uh, I spent a couple years in advertising, we didn't write very much, and then in 1991 we had the Read My Lips recession when uh, George Herbert Walker Bush uh, raised taxes, even though he said he wouldn't do so. The economy tanked, and I lost my job at Ogilvy and Mather Advertising, as so many people were laid off. And I thought, what can I do to make money? And so I thought, well, I know how to write op-ed pieces. So I went back to the op-ed work and have continued with that and uh, have pretty much written ever since uh, June 13, 1991, which is when I was laid off. Um, started doing TV probably somewhere in the mid-90s just as a guest, uh, as well as radio. And then since January 2012, I've been a uh, Fox News contributor and very happy to be um, on staff with them and go on the air usually a couple times a week to talk about events of the day and express my views uh, with the uh, national and international audience. 
Well, thanks for sharing that with us. So you're a founding member of the Project 21 Black Leadership Network. Can you first off tell us what a Project 21 does and then um, just talk a little bit about what you've been doing uh, since its inception? Project 21 is a project of the National Center for Public Policy Research, uh, which was founded in the mid-1980s. And uh, what Project 21 does is try to uh, bring conservative ideas into the black community and also have people who happen to be black appear on television, on the radio, and in print, et cetera, talking about uh, why free market ideas, limited government, free enterprise, uh, the rule of law, peace through strength, uh, why these ideas are good for the country and also good for black Americans in particular. Uh, and so as a consequence, uh, the uh, Project 21 folks are very good about getting me primarily on radio stations to talk about this sort of thing. And they've done, they've done so for probably the last 20 years or so. And um, I'm very happy to work with them. And uh, I think we are both getting the message into the black community and also showing uh, the overall American population that uh, there are black folks who are not uh, left-wingers screaming for more government, more and more government. There are people who are black who are on the right. And in fact, uh, you saw in the uh, last election that uh, President Donald J. Trump got 12% of the black vote. That's uh, 50% more than he had in uh, 2016. And it is, uh, I believe, three times, if I'm not wrong. No, it's about double. It's double what uh, Mitt Romney got in 2012. So there is, a, there is an appetite for, this, for these ideas in, in uh, among black Americans, and we're going to continue to make, make that case and make those arguments and hopefully persuade those people that uh, conservatism and free markets are, are very good things, very helpful things among black Americans. Well, on that note, just given your work in uh, the Project 21 Black Leadership Network, how do you think conservatives, just in general, can do better to reach the black community more? I think the primary thing that conservatives need to do to reach black Americans is make the effort. I think that there is a certain hesitancy to do so. Uh, I don't think it's malicious. I just think there's a sense, particularly among white conservatives, well, we don't know what to say to them, and we don't know quite the language, and maybe they'll be upset. And all the best thing to do is knock on the doors, go to the black churches, go to the black businesses, go to the black schools, whatever it is, and talk about these ideas and why they're good for America and why they're good for, for black Americans. I think a lot of folks, even if they don't necessarily agree with everything they hear, at least will appreciate the polite effort to come talk. And they'll say, all right, maybe in, I don't agree with all of that, but I appreciate you coming to talk to us. I think that's part of the reason that President Trump did as well as he did, is he's really the first Republican presidential nominee who's made a concerted effort to reach out for the black vote, uh, as well as his policies such as supporting historically black colleges and universities, First Step Act criminal justice reform, reauthorizing and funding the D.C. voucher program. These are all sorts of things that uh, I think a lot of black voters appreciate. And as a consequence, he did well, much better at the polls than most Republicans do. So uh, I follow that model. Go out and make the case. Be direct about it. Be bold about it. Don't be bashful about it. And if the, the Democrats and the left scream, let them scream. They're going to scream anyway. So let's, at least let them scream about something in response to something positive that's going on as opposed to just screaming racist, 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 which is what they do seven days a week, 24, 24-7, 365. Well, something that's really entered the national conversation more is this whole aspect of cancel culture. Uh, we see it happening right and left with different conservative organizations on Twitter, people being banned with really no rhyme or reason, and it just happening you know, out in the community as well, too. So what's your perspective of this, and how do you think conservatives can combat it? I think what's amazing to watch about this cancel culture is essentially it's censorship. But unlike most censorship that you see, around the world, which is conducted by governments, where the, the Ministry of the Interior will come down and shut down your newspaper, or close your TV station, whatever it might be. It's privatized. 
the left usually is against privatization, but what they've done is they've privatized censorship. So rather than have the FBI or the Department of Justice come in and, and shut down your, your website or your uh, TV channel or your um, conservative t-shirt shop or whatever, uh, this is being done by Google, this is being done by Amazon, this is being done by Twitter, uh, by Facebook, and uh, the henchmen, if you will, are not uh, people in long black trench coats operating out of Washington, D.C. Uh, they're people in uh, uh, T-shirts and flip-flops working in uh, San Jose and Palo Alto and Seattle and places like this. So there's something really unusual and new and insidious about this. It makes it much harder to fight because if the, you know, if the FBI came in and said, uh, okay, we're shutting down Parler, Parler could go to court and get that overturned probably overnight. But because it's done by a private organization, and private companies do have uh, the right to say we do or don't want to do business with these people. But given that they are basically operating as monopolies, and they're also protected by certain government privileges, namely uh, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, uh, that gives them protection from uh, liability from lawsuits. And so what they're trying to do is say, well, we're, we're private, uh, we can do what we want, but at the same time they're, they're hiding behind Uncle Sam's um, coattails, if you will. They really need to make a choice one way or the other. If they want the government protection, great. They can be protected from lawsuits, but then they have to be able, uh, Parler's got to be able to appear on uh, Amazon, um, uh, in the Apple Store, what have you. Um, people like uh, Dennis Prager and Prager University ought to be able to appear on YouTube without getting knocked out. And conversely, if, if YouTube and, and uh, Amazon and, and Twitter don't like conservatives, that's great. Go ahead and hate us. Don't do business with us, but then you're not going to get the government protection, and uh, if something goes wrong, people can take you to court. They're having the best of both worlds, and they really have to pick one world or the other. Well, DeRoy, thank you so much for joining us on the Daily Signal podcast. It's been great having you. Rachel, great to be with you, and enjoy the rest of CPAC. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. You can find the Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. And as always, please encourage others to subscribe. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with you all on Monday. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Rachel Del Judas. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.